Amen. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 18 in just a moment. Um, if I showed uh, you this, how many of you would recognize what this is? A few of you? All right, we'll put it on the screen as well. Um, this is the Gray's Sports Almanac. It was delivered from one older Biff Tannen in 2015 to one younger Biff Tannen on November 12th of 1955. And it changed the course of history in Hill Valley as they knew it. If you're not familiar, and I'm going to lean and say maybe this is the side of the room that's a little less familiar. This is from a movie uh, when us old folks uh, grew up watch, watching. It's called Back to the Future 2. Have you guys heard of this at all? Okay. All right. There's some, there's some folks that have seen this. All right. An incredible uh, trilogy of films. Um, look, uh, in the movie Back to the Future 2, uh, Marty McFly and Dr. Emmett Brown, uh, they return from saving Marty's future son from disaster only to discover that their own time has been vastly transformed. And so it is this horrible version of Hill Valley that was not meant to exist. Marty's father has been murdered by Biff Tannen, who's Marty's nemesis. And Biff has this overwhelming fortune, all of this success, and it's due to him taking this almanac, going in the DeLorean, going back in time, and giving it to his younger self. Now look, I don't, I don't want to make... Uh, Biff's not a great guy. I don't want to celebrate the antagonist in any story, but his story is really incredible because you think about it. He went from not understanding what the future was at all to literally having the future in the palm of his hands. In so many ways, he gets in that DeLorean and he travels back to 1955 and he rewrites the future. And he stands... In a fictional way, of course, in a spot where he knows exactly what is coming, down to the score. Remember the flash and ticker, Cubs win, Cubs win? That was when we all thought the Cubs would never be able to win the World Series, right? Talk about easy. He changed everything. Sure bets. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Now, you and I don't have a grazed almanac. It's February, about to be March, and the only thing that's certain, at least we could start with taxes, and we know the other's death, right? We don't have a way of telling the future. But what if we did? What if you and I held the promise of the future in our very hands and our very hearts? Because we know that the future is in God's unfailing word. And that the future can be trusted because we trust the one who holds it. We trust, we hope in his sovereignty. Over the last three weeks, we've been in a series called Sovereign. And to say that God is sovereign means that he's Lord over all creation. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he exercises his rule. His authority as king. He has dominion over all things, and so he can exercise his rule over all creation. And that might sound very impersonal. It might sound in some ways mechanical. 
right? Like he's the man behind the curtain. Like he's pulling levers or pulling strings and making things happen in this way. But it's actually incredibly personal. And as we've seen over the past three weeks, we're going to see again today that our God is loving and gracious. And in his sovereignty, he oversees not only the future, not only the world, but you and I as well. Today, we're going to close that series and look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And we're going to see these three things. These are the three things in a text that could be mined eternally. One of the things, or the three things rather, that we're going to look for and see today are these. Number one, the present does not compare with the future. The present does not compare with the future. Second, we have the promise of the future right now. As people who live in anticipation so often, we have the promise of the future now. Third, we can be patient in the present because we actually know the future. You and I can be patient in these present moments because we know the future. The question for us today is this. What if God's sovereignty, his rule, his authority is so trustworthy, so true, that you and I could bet our life on it? It's a sure bet that you and I could live in light of what he says is true. This is Romans chapter 8. Paul writes beginning in verse 18 and says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Number one, we're going to see this in verse 18, and we're going to camp out here for the, for the majority of our time. Our present pain does not compare with future glory. Our present pain does not compare with future glory. So Paul writes a letter. If you haven't read Romans or you're not familiar with this work, it's probably the, the most highly lauded, highly regarded, most highly read, studied epistle in all of the New Testament. Paul writes to these churches at Rome, and he writes to them largely because he's anticipating a trip to be with them. But in his absence, he, he longs to share with them the things that he says that they must know. He wants to teach them and train them in the faith and share with them all of the incredible things that Christ has done for them. And this is a really, really powerful book, and we're, we're really in the middle toward the latter portion of it here in the central part of Romans 8. And so a ton of stuff has already happened. Paul's already talked about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's wrath and human disobedience and justification by faith and sin that is universal that has affected everyone through Adam and that in Christ we're freed from the law to live by the Spirit. The law brings the knowledge of sin, but that Christ is the one who redeems us from sin. That and much more. And then here in chapter 8, 
Paul says in verse 1, you're likely familiar, that there is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. And that the Spirit bears witness that we're heirs of God with Jesus provided we suffer with him. That's what precedes our passage today. And the reality is for Paul, he knows that in saying this and in making this profound statement, this true statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he knows that this is going to meet his audience, these churches in Rome, these people, with some real questions and some existential ones and some real questions about who God is and what he's doing in the midst of where they are. These are the kind of questions that Paul knows these hearers are going to have. How can there be what feels like condemnation if there's no condemnation? Because Christians are being persecuted. Moreover, they're also experiencing just the harsh realities of life. Pain and suffering and death. They're asking questions like, well, how do we reconcile these things that are happening to us in our very lives with the promise that we're God's children? That he loves us, that he cares for us. And so in verse 18, Paul begins to help them understand not just who he is, but what he's doing. And that he is sovereign, and that the present pains that they feel are not worth comparing with the end of his sovereignty, the very end of his glory that's to be revealed. Verse 18. There's more than meets the eye. The present pain that Christians experience can only be understood in light of the future. In light of the future. In verse 18, Paul uses the word comparing in relationship to present pain and future glory. Specifically, that word that he uses when he's talking about the weight and the comparing is this word axia. It's where we get our word, axis. What Paul is talking about is not just contemplative language, saying that I just consider in some, in some thought manner, so it's something very nebulous. No, he's saying there's an actual point to this. He's saying if you really consider, if you really think about the actual weight of what's happening here, you're going to be astounded and overcome with the glory of God that is greater than anything you experience or feel in this moment. That access he's talking about is in so many ways the idea of a scale. Remember old scales and how they work. The scales of justice, right? Things are weighed. Heavier things sink and lighter things rise. Paul is saying to these believers... The future glory is so heavy, it's so weighty, it's so incredible, it's so beyond compare that the things that you're feeling, the things that you're experiencing now, it's almost as if they're weightless. They don't exist. The two things do not compare. It's important to note that, that Paul's train of thought here, this isn't something that he just thinks in this one moment. This is consistent with how he would write throughout the New Testament. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, and he's going to use the same language of weight and comparison. He writes to believers at Corinth, and he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, I want you to think about all the things in life that are unseen. Think about the things that, that are, are on the other side of adversity and pain and struggle. Think about the things that are beautiful consequences to pain. I could not help, and this might sound so silly, but I couldn't help about thinking what it was like to learn how to ride a bicycle. Now, I don't know how many kids ride bikes these days, but if you grew up riding back, watching Back to the Future, like I did, you rode bikes everywhere, all the time. It was how you got around as a kid. It was your transportation. It was the way that you hung out with your friends. It was the way that you spent time with people. And I do remember what it was like to try and learn to ride a bicycle. And I remember that when the training wheels came off, it got tough. I'm not a good driver now, okay? When, when, when it was back then, when I was a kid, man, it was really, really challenging. And I remember my dad, and I don't know if this was, was your, your mom, your dad, a parent, or someone who was encouraging you and helping you. I remember him just pushing me to be able to do this. And I didn't feel like I could do it. One, because at the beginning, I literally couldn't. I fell over. I skinned my knee. I kind of got to go in, and then everything stalled out, right? Here's the wild thing about riding a bicycle. It's so brilliant that it comes with this phrase, like riding a bicycle. I got to this spot where it was natural. And the thing that was amazing about it was not just the ability to do it, but the experience that came with it. This unbridled joy, this fun to just go grab your bike and hop on without even thinking. Just like muscle memory, automatic. And I would go do this thing and it would be a blast and I would have a ton of fun. And it didn't take long before I'd never, ever given a second thought to the skin knee or the lack of self-esteem or the thought that I couldn't do it. They didn't compare. There was nothing that was going to take away the joy from that. Now, that might sound like a really little thing, a really silly thing. You might say, Michael, I'm talking about real stuff. Real stuff, real struggles, suffering, sickness, death, financial struggles, broken relationships. These are real things. Well, my story is silly, but it illustrates the point that Paul's making. And Paul is talking about these things too. Because quite often, we read the scriptures and say, well, those are people that are existing in a different time. And it's more like persecution they were experiencing in the, in the, the early church, right? Like that's what he's talking about. He's, oh, he's talking about everything. He's talking about all of this. There's a quote by a gentleman named Douglas Moo who's done some incredible work in, in the book of Romans. And this is what he writes about this specific moment. He says, These sufferings of the present time are not only those trials that are endured directly because of the confession of Christ. For instance, persecution. He's saying that there's more to this. But that these sufferings that Paul's talking about encompass the whole gamut of suffering including things such as illness, bereavement, hunger, financial reversals, and death itself. To be sure, Paul has spoken of our suffering in verse 17. And I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, to look at verse 17 right before you right now, because here's what you're going to see, that we are heirs of God with Christ. We suffer with Him. That's the preceding passage that kind of tells us the point. 
He says, but there is a sense in which all of the suffering of Christians is with Christ. So that the suffering you experience, that you and I experience, is not alone. Inasmuch as Christ was himself subject by virtue of his coming in the sinful flesh. Now I want you to look, if you have your Bible before you in Romans chapter 8, look over back to verse 3. And you're going to see that what's happening here is Paul is saying, how is it that we're suffering with Christ? How is it that we're in the midst of this pain and this struggle, and yet we are with him in it, and moreover, he meets us in it? It's because he took on the likeness of sinful flesh. In a corporeal manner, he took on our flesh to the manifold sufferings of this world in rebellion against God. You know what that means? That means that you and I are not alone. And moreover, that our suffering is not an anomaly. It's not strange. We're walking the way of the Lord. We're experiencing what the Lord experienced. And yet he has done it for us in a way that we could not. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is what Jesus experienced. Genuine suffering. The same types, the same kinds of suffering that you and I experienced. Rejection from his family. Not just his friends, his family. Remember this? Early in the Gospels, his family is trying to silence him. Tell him, hey, well, you can't say these things. People are going to think you're crazy. And Jesus experienced homelessness. Birds have nests. Foxes have holes, right? He had nowhere to lay his head. Betrayal, gossip, slander, public shame. And just to the root, the most basic thing about humanity, just hunger. He suffered. And yet for the joy set before him, endured the cross. As Paul writes about the weightiness of God's glory, it's an amazing thing to see that our present pain does not compare with future glory. And that means that you and I can hope in God's sovereignty and His goodness even when we are suffering. Here's the second thing. We have the promise of the future now. We have the promise of the future now. Not only does the present that we experience now not compare with the future, we have the promise of the future now. When you look into verses 19 through 22 specifically, you see all this creation language. All this language about the creation that is groaning. That it longs for the revelation of the sons of God, for the children of God. What do all these things mean? We just sang a moment ago, we just sang that, that nature... Gives testimony to God. It bears what we just sang, manifold witness, right? And yet this creation has been marred by sin and it feels its effects and thus is crying out. What's all this language about creation and longing? Paul is stating that God's glory, the culmination of the life of the world to come eternally once and for all, is so incredible It is so incredible that all of creation is waiting for us to be revealed as God's children. 
All of creation is waiting, is longing for that. The curse of sin has so marred the world that creation awaits for us to be revealed. And creation is not alone in this. But as you look into verse 23, do you see this? So do we. So do we groan. Believers groan and wait for that day because we have something. A place from which that yearning, that longing for another world comes from. What is it? Where, where does that happen? Where does it start? Well, it starts in what Paul calls the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits of the Spirit is for this reason that we long to be fully glorified with God. That we long to experience the life of the world to come. How is that? What does Paul mean by first fruits of the Spirit? Why does he say that? He's using that language to articulate and say that the Holy Spirit is truly the beginning. It's regeneration. It's us coming to life in Christ. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. When we believe in who Jesus is and what he's done, when we repent of our sins, when we trust in him, we are marked, we are guaranteed, we are given the Holy Spirit. And that's the beginning. And yet, that beginning, that very Holy Spirit assures us that there is an end that will come. That there is an end that will come. The first fruits, and what Paul is saying, is that it's the mark of the beginning, and yet the end will come. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and Paul will speak in similar, similar language. He's describing Christ, and he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, this is the result of believing in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, and this speaks to his sovereignty, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul would say the same thing in a similar manner in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So there's something incredible happening here that Paul is saying. In the midst of this world that is crying out, that is longing for God's glory to come, for Christ to return, for his people to be revealed, for the dead in Christ to rise from the very ground that cries out. Paul is saying, if you've trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you and is the marker and the assurance of hope. The Holy Spirit is within you and assures you of hope. And this is not wishful thinking in the way that we often use the word hope. Instead, it's sure. It is certain expectation, knowing what will come to pass. It's the idea of placing a bet when you know the game's already over. Being certain, being sure of what God has done. Working in us from justification, in sanctification, and to glorification. We have the promise of the future now. The Spirit within us bears witness so we can hope in God's sovereignty because we've been given the Holy Spirit. Finally, we can be patient in the present because we know the future. We can be patient in the present because we know the future. Now, if you watch Back to the Future Part 2, you don't get the timeline and every picture of how Biff made every dollar. 
what, what he bet on every single game and how he, how, he, how he amassed his fortune. You don't get the every kind of minutia, every detail of that. But here's the one thing you get an indication of. It was going to happen, and he was never worried about it because he had the cheat code. He knew it. There is not a sense of doubt within him. These things had already played out. He didn't wait anxiously. He waited confidently. In verses 24 and 25, Paul uses all this language about hope, and it's repeated consistently. He says, for in this hope we were saved. And then he says something that seems to us so obvious, right? Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Well, that didn't sound really profound. Of course. Because if I saw this stuff, then I wouldn't have to have hope, right? He says, for who hopes for what he sees? But then he kind of describes the hope of the Christian. And the hope of the Christian is not seeing so they believe, but it's believing and so now they can spiritually see. Believing in what God has said so now they can see the future that is coming. He says, but if we hope for what we do not see, he says we wait for it with patience. And I want to tell you what Paul says and what he means when he describes waiting with patience. Paul is talking about a very active patience. An active patience, not a passive one. And those words sound like they don't belong together. What is active patience anyway? Because what does patience look like for most of us? What does life look like for us while we wait? It looks like nothing. That's what waiting is, right? You go to the doctor, what do you do? You wait. No offense if there's any physicians in here, right? But you wait. What do you do when you get on 280 at peak hours? You wait, right? What do you do when you try to get off on the little side road, the old 280, and you go back around, right, by the creek, and you're trying to drive back and get to 41, right? You wait because you're not the first person that had that idea. So now you're stuck behind everybody else that also wanted to do that, right? We wait constantly. What do we do when we wait? We pick up our phone. Then we put our phone down, and we start thinking for a minute, and then we realize we don't want to think, so we pick up our phone. And that's what waiting is to us. But Paul says that we're to actively wait. He uses a word that describes three specific things. Wait for it with patience doesn't mean to sit on your hands. He says this, it's a welcoming from and out of. It's a waiting that decisively puts away everything that should remain behind. So Paul's talking about waiting eagerly. He's saying there's this enthusiastic, joyous, anticipatory sense of waiting. That what we're meant to do is actually do what the scriptures say about fixing our eyes on Jesus. Getting outside of the place where we're thinking in the temporal, present moment and thinking about the future hope of God's glory. His sovereignty, His plan coming to fruition before our very eyes. That we would be the kind of people that do truly set our minds on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That we would be the kind of person that would, in Christ, think on things that are heavenly. Beyond us. It's that Philippians 4 kind of thinking. Things that are good. Things that are righteous. That when we think toward these things, we're actually experiencing 
the waiting Paul describes for the believer, the hope of the here and now. There's a gentleman named Tom Schreiner, and he's a brilliant guy, and he's done a lot of work on Romans. Um, and this is his phrase about, and this is the way he sums up what Paul is saying about hope. He says, the future glory in which we hope, you and me, the future glory is so stunning that it presents our circumstances, our present sufferings, they're rendered inconsequential. Like they never even happened. Like they're not worth considering even. Paul knows that in God's sovereignty, we have true hope. Confident expectation that he is working for the good of all who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is the one that is accomplishing this for us. This is our joy that we have hope in God's sovereignty. So what do we do with this? What do these truths mean for us? How do we apply these things? Number one, we remember that in our suffering, we're not alone. When you feel lonely in your suffering, remind yourself that Christ is not unable to sympathize with you. And that he's victorious over sin. I had someone reach out to me this week, a friend, and ask how they could pray for me. I said, man, I, I got some challenges. Here's what, how I'd love for you to pray for me. And one of the things is I'm feeling lonely. You know what he sent to me? Psalm 25, 16. Turn to me, you who are lonely and afflicted, for I'm with you. Psalm 139. Psalm 23. He encouraged me. Just put truth before me consistently. And it caused me to remember not only that I'm not alone because He's with me. This brother is praying for me. But also, I'm not alone because Christ is with me. No matter what present suffering I find myself in or you do, remind yourself you're not alone. Second, remember that in your longing, that yearning, that the Spirit of God rests in you. This is a sign of blessed assurance. The first fruit of the Spirit points to the beginning indwelling of God in you by His Spirit and the life of the world to come. Third, let's wait actively together to fix our eyes on Jesus daily. And this is going to sound wild, but when we read His Word consistently and when we pray in dependence on the Lord, we direct our heart and our mind towards Him. We begin to anticipate and long for his sovereignty, the thing that he longs for, to come to fruition. Remember you're not alone. Remember in your longing that the Spirit is in you and wait actively by focusing on Jesus. Um, this morning we get the opportunity to celebrate and anticipate the future in a beautiful way. We get to come to the table together and partake of the Lord's Supper. And so as our deacons and elders come and we prepare to serve this meal, I want to encourage you with a couple of things. Um, number one, this is really historically, and as, as Paul would write uh, in 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 11 and the passage that we'll read in just a moment, this is really a meal, like a, like a full meal. And so there was celebration and connection and joy and laughter and people hugged one another, and they experienced one another in a powerful way. So this would be my encouragement to you. Um, and come to this table, and come celebrating 
the future glory that we can experience and rest in because of God's sovereign goodness. And come to this table joyfully. Come to it celebrating. And then I would encourage you this. For those of you that have have not trusted in Christ, uh, I would urge you not to come to this table and not to partake of these elements um, because it would not mean anything to you. Instead, believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus who's given himself for you. And if you want to know what that looks like, if you have questions about that, any of us will be available after the service to speak with you. As you prepare to come to the table here in just a moment, think on the very goodness of God and how he has sovereignly met you in your suffering. Think about the fact that the Spirit indwells you and is present with you now. And think about the fact that He is trustworthy from every moment here on out. And then come and proclaim that at this table. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, these words will be spoken over us. That is Christ's body given for us. It is the cup, blood of the new covenant, shed for us. Father, would you cause us to receive your good gifts with grateful hearts, longing for the day we will experience being glorified with you. Father, this morning I pray that you would Allow us to remember you as we come to this table, seeing the tangible picture of the fact that you have remembered us. So real is this bread, so real is this liquid we'll drink, Father. It is a picture of your Son, Jesus, who has given his body for us and shed his blood that we might be forgiven of our sins. So, Father, bring us to your table now and feed us spiritually. Help us continually to trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth and for us as well. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's come to the table.